Uh, we just finished going through Jonah, the book of Jonah, uh, just a few weeks ago. Jonah preached to the Ninevites. We saw that. The entire nation repented. We saw that God spared the nation because they repented. And so then that's where the book ends, right? On the high note of the Ninevites or for the Ninevites. But the question is, okay, so what happens next after they repent? What's the sequel to the story? We love sequels. So what happens with Nineveh after this? Well, the generation that repents lives as a believing generation. And we see this in Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus says that that generation, the one that repented, will rise up and it will stand in judgment over the generation that refuses to believe in Jesus' time. But then after that believing generation, in the generations that follow, in the generations that come afterwards in Nineveh, all of those generations return to their former, to their pagan practices, and they do that very, very quickly. You remember how Assyria comes and it conquers northern Israel? Well, that happens 40 years after Jonah's generation repents, after Jonah preaches to the Ninevites. I'm 41, so 1981, that's when Jonah preaches to the Ninevites, they repent. 40 years later today, the Ninevites, all of Assyria, they go and they conquer Israel. 20 years after that, 20 years into the future, about 700 BC or so, Sennacherib comes to Judah and he tries to capture Judah and he mocks God. He says, who is Yahweh who's going to help you and who's going to protect you? Completely mocks God. They, all of the people, all of the Assyrians return to their pagan gods. They return to Ashur. Ashur, that's the same name as Assyria. They uh, return to worshiping Ishtar, the goddess of Nineveh, the goddess of love. Nabu, who is the god of writing. That's Nebuchadnezzar, the name Nabu is in that name. They have Nergal, Tiamat, Marduk, Enlil, Ninlil, Nisrach, and many other gods. And they return to worshiping him, worshiping them. And so for about 100 years after Jonah, the Ninevites are becoming more and more wicked, and God is patient with them. And then God sends another prophecy, a prophecy of destruction, a prophecy of warning. He sends Nahum to bring the message to them. And unlike the generation of Jonah, the generation of Nahum refuses to repent. The Assyrians refuse to repent as a nation. And this is the prophecy that we want to look at for the next several Sundays and to unpack it and to see what God says through the prophet Nahum. So turn with me to Nahum chapter 1, and we want to take a look at the first eight verses today. And as you're turning there, we can ask the question, what is Nahum about? You can actually ask the question, where is Nahum, <laughs> right? But if you go Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. So if you're in Matthew, Mark, you're too far. You want to be in the Old Testament. <laughs> Jonah, Micah, Nahum, just a couple books afterwards. But what is, Jonah, what is Nahum about? Well, according to this bookmark that most of you have and the, the visitors definitely have today, you see that uh, according to this bookmark, the book of Nahum is about God's comfort through judgment. God's comfort through judgment. The book depicts, depicts God, the character of God, with two seemingly incompatible characteristics. He is both the God of judgment 
and he is the God of comfort. And this even comes out in the name, in the prophet Nahum. In verse 1, he's uh, introduced as Nahum the Elkishite, and the name, the name Nahum means comforter. But this comforter goes and he preaches judgment. But as Nahum focuses on this, as he brings out the characteristics of God, he shows how these two characteristics work together hand in hand. You look at God and you see his characteristic of comfort and you have a sense of security. You look at this same God and you see his characteristic of judgment and you have a sense of fear. You're all familiar with the classic series, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. I imagine by C.S. Lewis. Last Christmas, I gave uh, my nephew Michael this series, and he was reading through it. And as he was reading through it, I would ask him various questions about the book. Well, the books. And these books, there's four kids, and uh, there is a character who's named Aslan, and Aslan is a lion. And he represents God and Christ. And so obviously, as a lion, Aslan is terrifying. But he's also a loving character, and he ultimately sacrifices himself for one of the kids and gives up his life. So as I was asking my nephew, Michael, the questions, I would ask him, I asked him at one point, do the kids, do the kids in the story love Aslan the lion? And he said, yes, they do. So then I said, are the kids afraid of Aslan the lion? And he said, yes, they are. So I said to him, which one is it, kid? Are they afraid or do they love him? And he said, I don't know. (laughs) But there is a point in the story when the kids are going to meet Aslan. And Peter, one of the oldest kids, he says that as they're walking up to meet him, he says, I'm longing to see him even if I am afraid. And this is what we see in the book of Nahum we see a God who is terrifying, God who is full of wrath, God who is destructive. But at the same time, we see a God who is good, God who shows mercy and God who provides comfort. And so we want to look at this book for the next several weeks, but let's begin by looking at verses 1 through 8. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And let me read this portion for us. The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Ilkashite. A jealous and avenging God is Yahweh. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh is avenging against his adversaries, and he keeps his anger for his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power. And Yahweh will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan, Carmel languish. The blossoms of Lebanon languish. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills melt. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are torn down by him. Yahweh is good, a strong defense in the day of distress. 
and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete destruction of its place and will pursue his enemies into darkness. You look at these eight verses, and in these verses, Nahum reveals three specific characteristics about God, characteristics that should prompt us both to fear and to love God. He reveals that God is the God of justice. He reveals that God is the God of power. And he reveals that God is the God of mercy. And he begins by focusing on the justice of God. He shows that God is a God of justice. Now, in our culture, we always hear the expression, God is love. Hollywood, politics, the regular people in regular conversations on the street, we always hear God is love. And this is obviously taken from the Bible. 1 John 4.16 says that God is love. But the question is, what do the people mean when they say God is love? If we say God is love, and by that we mean that the people who repent, God saves them, and the people who refuse to repent, God condemns them, then this is true, God is love. But when our culture says this, God is love, it means that God doesn't judge you for who you are. God doesn't punish you when you express the true you, whatever that means. God accepts you just the way you are. Well, Nahum says that that's absolutely false. God is a judge who judges sin and who judges sinners. He is the God of justice. And as Nahum begins to unpack this for us, he shows that the justice of God consists of jealousy, consists of vengeance, consists of wrath. In verse 2, Nahum writes, A jealous and avenging God is Yahweh. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh is avenging against his adversaries, and he keeps his anger for his enemies. So here we see, first of all, that God's justice expresses itself in his jealousy. God is a jealous God. I mean, with humans, jealousy is typically sinful because we want what doesn't belong to us. With God, jealousy is absolutely perfect. God's jealousy captures his righteous response to what he deserves, but what we refuse to give to him, and that is worship. God is jealous for the glory of his name. In Exodus 34, 14, Moses says to the Israelites, You shall not worship any other God, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God is so jealous for his name that you can call his name jealous. That is the intensity of his jealousy for his name and for his glory. And you see an example of this in Jesus. When Jesus goes to the temple during Passover and he sees that in the temple they're selling oxen and sheep and doves and other things, and he makes a whip and he drives all of them out and he turns the table and he pours out the money on the ground and he says, stop making my father's house a place of business in John chapter 2. 
And then John reflects on this and he says about Jesus, zeal, which is the same word for jealousy, jealousy for your house will consume me. Jesus was jealous for the name of Yahweh. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is jealous for his name. Now, this jealousy for his name includes God's jealousy for his people Israel. In Ezekiel 39, verse 25, this is during the exile. God says, Now I will return the fortunes of Jacob, Israel, and have compassion on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. For God to be jealous for Israel is for God to be jealous for his own name. God becomes jealous when those whom he loves are assaulted by the enemies. And that's what happened in 722 BC. Assyria took the 10 tribes of Israel into captivity, and that made God jealous. This assault on the nation of Israel God made God jealous. Now, you may hear this, and you may say, well, they were sinful. They deserved the punishment. And that's true, but in Isaiah 10, when it's discussing the Assyria and how they will uh, take Israel to captivity, God says that he sent Assyria for this purpose, but Assyria acted proudly in fulfilling this role, not the way that God intended it. And so God says in Isaiah 10, 12, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. So you look at this and you see that part of God's justice is his jealousy for his people, which is his jealousy for his name. Now, in addition to jealousy, God's justice also expresses itself through vengeance. And God's vengeance, as you look at this passage, it dominates Nahum's introduction to God. He repeats the word avenge Three times in this passage, avenging God, avenging and wrathful, avenging against his adversaries. When people today say that God is love, they're trying to neutralize him and they're trying to remove his quality of justice and judgment. But Nahum does the exact opposite. He emphasizes the vengeance of God by repeating it over and over and over and by introducing God to us with this quality. And Deuteronomy 32 verse 41 actually defines for us what does vengeance mean. And God says in this passage, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. God will destroy his enemies. Now, Naaman's not rejecting God's love, but he is saying that God is just and that this includes vengeance against sinners who reject God. Now, in addition to jealousy and vengeance, God's justice expresses itself in wrath. Nahum says that Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Literally, the Hebrew means that God is the master of his wrath. God is in full control of his fury. He's not impulsive. Nahum says that God keeps his anger for his enemies. And the fact that God's wrath is calculated, that it's precise, makes it all the more frightening. I've mentioned previously here the message by Jonathan Edwards, 
Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I want to read a portion from it which describes very vividly the wrath of God. Jonathan Edwards writes, The God who holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it's nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every single moment. This is God's perspective of sin. This is God's perspective of sinners who refuse to repent. And Nahum says here that God's wrathful vengeance targets specifically those who reject God, who are his enemies. And then Paul, the apostle Paul says in Romans 1.18, the passage that Pastor John referred to today in the first service, Paul says that this is God's response to all evil. He says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God is furious with those who reject him, who rebel against him, who refuse his call to repentance through the Messiah, through the Lord Jesus Christ, because there's only one way that you can receive repentance. And here in Nahum, we see that God is furious with Nineveh, with its wickedness as a whole that offends God, and its wickedness specifically against Israel. Now you hear this and you say, but I thought that God was slow to anger. I thought that was the quality of God. And Jonah said to God, you are slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. And this is true. But Nahum points out that slow to anger doesn't mean that there is no anger. Slow to anger means that at the right time, the anger will come and it will come in its full fury. This is what Nahum says in verse 3. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power, and Yahweh will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. When I was doing grad school, I had a professor who said that, you know, you have all of these religious people saying that God is going to come, and God is going to judge the world, and God is going to destroy the world, but then you look at this world, and everything just goes as it always has gone. Well, Peter, the Apostle Peter, speaks of this very attitude in 2 Peter 3, and he says that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. God is patient, but the day of judgment is coming, and it will come in full fury and Peter continues to say in verse 7, 2 Peter 3, 7, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly 
men. And this is Nahum's point. Judgment is coming, and God will punish all the guilty. God is a God of justice. And part of being a just God is judging sinners who rebel against God, whether it's Nineveh who reject God or it's people in our time, people today who refuse to repent. And when God does come to judge, he will judge with power. And this is the second characteristic that Nahum brings out. God is a God of power. After Nahum says that God will carry out justice and bring judgment against Nineveh, a typical Israelite could say, how? How is God going to achieve such a victory against such a powerful nation? Assyria was spreading all throughout the ancient Near East. And you can see on the screen the map, the colors in green refer to the area where Assyria conquered all of the land of the ancient Near East. I think it's appearing right now. It's taking a second. There it is. All right. You can see that green. That is the control that Assyria had had of all of the ancient Near East. Now find Judah. Right there. And there you have a prophet, Nahum, crying out and saying, God is going to destroy Assyria. And you can understand why the people would say, how? How is God going to do this? And you can imagine that some people are saying, thank you, Nahum. You can now sit down. (laughs) Is there another prophet who wants to say something, right? Because this is so incredible to the human mind. How is God going to destroy, to conquer all of this territory and to destroy a nation that is so powerful? And Nahum answers this question by giving us five images that show the immense power of God. First, Nahum says that God has the power over the weather. Whirlwind, storm, clouds, God controls all of those. In verse 3, Nahum says, In whirlwind, whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. Weather is one of those things that we can't control. We can predict it. We can hide from it in our houses or in the basements, wherever there are tornadoes. But you can't stop it. When a storm comes, everything in its way is destroyed. That's why we call them natural disasters. But Nahum says that God is in control of these and that they serve him. For God, these are not natural disasters that threaten God in some way. These are natural elements that serve God entirely, completely. You think to Jonah, right? Jonah tries to flee from God, and God sends a wind against the sea or upon the sea, and there was a great storm. The storm completely submits to the orders of God. In Daniel 7.13, Daniel describes the Son of Man coming with the clouds. All of these things, whirlwind, storm, clouds, all of them serve and they submit to God. And here Nahum describes how they serve God when God comes to judge Nineveh. Secondly, God has the power over the waters. 
the sea, the rivers, all of the waters. In verse 4, Nahum says, He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. When Israel was crossing the Red Sea, Psalm 106 says that God rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. It submitted to God. When Israel was crossing the Jordan River, about to enter into the Promised Land, Joshua 3 says that God split the Jordan and the Israelites crossed on dry ground. When Jesus was in the boat and there was a storm, the disciples were terrified that they were going to die, so they called to Jesus. Jesus came out and Jesus said, Silence, be still. And the storm disappeared. God is in control of all the waters and they all submit to him. Thirdly, God has power over the crops and over the produce all over the world. And here he lists Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon. In the second part of verse 4, it says, Bashan and Carmel languish. The blossoms of Lebanon languish. Bashan, Carmel, Lebanon, those are where all regions known for their fruitfulness. Bashan was at the mount of Mount Hermon, so of a large mountain. And so all of the water would flow down to it and the land would be fertile. Carmel, we know this place. This is the mountain where Elijah destroys the, the, gods, the, the gods of Baal or the priests of Baal. And Carmel actually became so known for its fruitfulness that it was used in biblical poetry. Song of Songs 7.5, there the bridegroom says to the bride, your head crowns you like Carmel. I think that's a compliment. (laughs) And then Lebanon was another place that was known for its cedars, for the cedars of Lebanon. And Nahum says here that when God judges, these fruitful lands, they will wither, they will dry out, they will completely wilt. And so you say, okay, I get the point. God is powerful, but Nahum says, I'm not done just yet. Fourthly, he says that God has the power over the mountains and the hills. In verse 5, Nahum says, mountains quake because of him, and the hills melt. Mountains and hills don't move. We know this. But, and actually, during the flood, you think back to the flood, when the water covered the entire earth, the entire universe, There you see that the ark was floating, and where did it find some stable land? Where did it stop? Genesis 8.4 says that the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. Mountains are stable and powerful, but at the presence of God, not only do they move, they quake, they shake. The mighty mountains, the mighty hills, they become completely flat at the presence of God. And fifthly, Nahum shows here that God has the power over the whole world. The earth, the world, all of the people. In the second part of verse 5, he says, Indeed, the earth is upheaved. It's lifted up. It's upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. The earth, the, the world, all the people are lifted up and they're thrown into st- instability when God judges. You can imagine just taking some kind of a board game, whether it's chess or checkers or Monopoly or whatever board game you play, you lift it up and everything goes flying. 
And Nahum says that God's power has this effect on the world when God judges. And in John, and John in Revelation 6, towards the end, he looks to the future and he says that God actually will do all of this. John says in Revelation 6, 14, Then I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, and the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. So the sun, the moon, the stars, the sky, the mountains, the islands, everything that we think is stable right now, it is completely destabilized, thrown into chaos when God judges. Only God is able to achieve all of this because God's power is irresistible. And so when somebody asks, when the Israelites ask, how is God going to destroy Assyria? How is God going to destroy Nineveh that has all of the ancient Near East under its control? Without a problem. It will be very easy for God because God has the entire universe in his control. And then after this, Nahum gives us the application to this right away. He says that God is so powerful that no one can stand against God. In verse 6, Nahum says, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning anger, the burning of his anger? And the answer is that no one can escape the anger of God unless they repent. And that's exactly what the Ninevites in Jonah's generation they were hoping for. The king said, after Jonah preached, the king said, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn away from his burning anger so that we will not perish. They understood that only God can spare them. Only God can turn away from his burning anger. And that's the only way of escape. And we need to be spared because the burning anger of God is so destructive and so comprehensive in his destruction. Verse 6, he says, His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are torn, torn down by him, by God. Think about the fire. Just like a fire incinerates and everything is gone. And just like that terrible image of the twin towers coming down when everything just came tumbling down, God's wrath totally destroys when God judges. And this warning applies not only to the Ninevites at that time, but it applies to people, to all of us today. In Hebrews 10.31 the author writes, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this is Nahum's message to the Ninevites and to every single person here today. God is a just God and he will judge all sinners who refuse to repent. And this repentance is possible only, as Pastor John preached this morning, it's possible only and exclusively through the suffering servant, through Jesus, the Messiah, through Jesus Christ. Either we suffer the wrath of God or Christ suffers the wrath of God in our place. There is no other way. That's the only way to escape God's wrath. And then after Nahum demonstrates the power of God, Nahum shifts to the third characteristics of, characteristic of God. He says that God is 
merciful. He, merciful. he focuses on the mercy of God. After he speaks here of the justice of God and the power of God to be entirely destructive, Nahum abruptly turns in verse 7 and he makes this statement, Yahweh is good. You look at this after everything that we just said and you say, how is God good if everything up to this point has been talking about his destruction and his judgment? How is that good? Well, God is good specifically because he destroys those who are sinful. And God is good because he shows mercy in this way to those who trust in him. That is Nahum's point here. The goodness of God means that God will do both. He will punish the guilty and he will show mercy. Now, on the one hand, Nahum says that God is good because he shows mercy. And he defends his own. In verse 7 it says, God is a strong defense in the day of distress. And he knows those who take refuge in him. He is a strong defense in the day of distress. When I lived in Israel, I lived in an apartment there. And there was a special room in that apartment. And that room was called the bomb shelter. And, the re- and it wasn't figurative. It literally was the bomb shelter. The door was metal. It was huge. The walls were metal. They were huge. The, the window had a metal sheet that was bulletproof. The window itself was bulletproof. So I was lucky enough to live in that room. <laughs> and if there were ever an attack on Israel, everybody would come into my room. We would shut the door, and presumably we would be safe. I never tried it, so presumably it would all be okay. But... That was the room that provided safety for those who were living in that apartment. And that's the idea of God for his own. He provides that absolute protection that a fortress would provide. He is that protection. And then Nahum says that he knows his own, those who take refuge in him. When a new king arose in Egypt, next is chapter 1, It says that the king did not know Joseph. And so the question is, what does that mean he didn't know Joseph? Did he never hear of Joseph? I mean, there were Israelites everywhere. What does it mean that he didn't know Joseph? Well, the passage answers that right away because he begins to oppress the Israelites. He didn't care about Joseph. He didn't care about the fact that Joseph saved the Egyptians and the Israelites. And so he oppressed them. Now, in contrast to this, you go to Exodus chapter 2, the uh, Israelites are oppressed, they're enslaved, and so they begin to cry out to God, and at the end of Exodus 2, it says that God knew them. God knew them. And so we want to ask, well, what does that mean, that God knew them? We'll read the rest of the chapters, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and on, and you see that, that that's God's response to knowing them. It's His act of saving them. When it says that God knows the Israelites, it means that God cares for them and that God provides salvation to them. That's the idea of know here as well. For God to know you is for God to save you. And you can think about John 10, 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own. 
and my own know me. And then in verse 15, the very next verse, Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. For God to know you is for God to save you. Now, the flip side of this is that if God doesn't know you, then you perish. Matthew 7, verse 22, says that many people will come to God and they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And God will respond to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The opposite of knowing is destruction by God. And so Nahum says here that God is good because he knows you. But Nahum also says that God is good because he destroys his enemies. In verse 8, Nahum says, But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete destruction of its place and will pursue his enemies into darkness. God is good because he destroys the wicked. I have lost unbelieving friends and family. I know you have lost unbelieving friends and family. So I don't say this lightly or flippantly in any way. But Nahum says God is good because God destroys those who reject him. Psalm 136 begins uh, by saying that God is good and that his loving kindness endures forever. And then the psalm continues to say in verse 10 that God struck the Egyptians through their firstborn for his loving kindness endures forever. In verse 17 it says, God struck great kings for his loving kindness endures forever. In verse 18 it says, God killed mighty kings for his loving kindness endures forever. These are all expressions of God's goodness and God's loving kindness. How so, we may ask? Because God was destroying sin and sinners, and he was delivering his own. And Nahum says that God is doing the very same thing with the Ninevites in his time. Nineveh will be entirely destroyed. That's the prophecy of Nahum. It will be destroyed as if a flood came and just wiped it out. And the interesting here thing is that the Ninevite kings, they used to compare themselves to a flood because that was an expression of power. One of the Assyrian kings said that he killed all his enemies and wiped them out like a flood. But now it is God who destroys them with a flood, as Nahum says. And the Babylonians came like a flood in 612 B.C., and they completely destroyed and took over all of the land that Assyria had possessed. And after this, Assyria lay in its ruins for 2,600 years. Nobody would have even known that there was a city there called Nineveh. In 1842, just, what is that, 180 years ago, they, they discovered the location where Nineveh was uh, once established. And then Nahum adds here, that in this destruction, God pursues the wicked into darkness. In other words, absolute punishment. 
Just like Jesus said in Matthew 25, you remember that parable about the wicked slave who buried the talent instead of investing it? Well, Jesus said, throw out that worthless slave into the outer darkness in the place there, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place of absolute torment and punishment. And so too, God says here through Nahum that he pursues his enemies to darkness. God does this because God is just. God does this because he is powerful. God does this because God is merciful. And our response to this must be to love God, to fear God, to worship God, to submit to God. That's the call that Nahum is exhorting us to, uh, to uh, submit to. Now, let me end by focusing on the way that Nahum ends in this section. The entire portion of verses 1 through 8 is alphabetical. It's organized in an alphabetical order, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, etc. It's an acrostic. Uh, the first part is Aleph, and then the second part is Bet, Gimel. You can see that on the screen. The highlighted yellow portions are the alphabet. Now, you begin this text and you think, okay, so it begins with Aleph or A, B, C, D, E, and it's going to go all the way through because that's what the alphabet does. It begins at A and it ends at Z, from A to Z. But as you read this, you see, okay, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, and then it stops. There's no more alphabet after this. And you look at this and you wonder, what is going on here? What happened to the alphabet? Why did it suddenly disappear? And then you look at the place where it disappears, and this is verse 8, the end. Suddenly gone, but this is what it says in verse 8. He will make a complete destruction of its place, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. And you realize that the wicked are suddenly and unexpectedly destroyed. Just like the alphabet suddenly and unexpectedly disappears, that's the wicked. They suddenly and they unexpectedly disappear. The people will eat, they will drink, they will marry, they will be given to marriage. Just like in the days of Noah, that's what Jesus says. And suddenly they will be destroyed when they do not expect it. When we see Nahum depict God as a God who is both wrathful and merciful, we must have one response to this. And that one response must be to love him and to fear him. For believers, we love, we fear, we worship, and we thank God that we will escape this wrath that Nahum speaks about. For those who do not believe in God, you must fear, you must repent, because if you don't, destruction will come when you don't expect it, and there will be no way for you to escape it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, after we look at a passage like this, the only response that we can have is to say thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you have provided a way of escape for us. Thank you that you gave Jesus to die on the cross for us, that he receives your wrath so that we don't have to receive your wrath. Lord, thank you that you have left 
the words of Nahum for us to look at, to study, and to understand your character. Lord, thank you that you are just. And thank you that you are powerful and that you are merciful. Lord, we worship you. We honor you. We fear you. And we love you. Father, I pray that you would instill these truths in our heart and help us to love you more and to become more like Christ. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.